As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And tame, and tame again. Break up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! What actually is international level? Has there ever been a successful wind-up about someone's call-up to the national team? Who would make the quintessential England B lineup in 2020? And what's the most held at Loftus Road on a Tuesday night international friendly imaginable? Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Access to The Athletic is just £1 a month. Go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Joining me, first of all, he's made his return. It's Charlie Eccleshare. How are you? Yes, good. How are you? Night. Yeah, not too bad. Nice to have you back. News uh, this week that England are looking for new opponents after New Zealand have pulled out their November friendly. It, it strikes me as all very Sunday league, this, where you're trying to scrabble around for a replacement opposition. Yeah, and this ties into... Um... Presumably, our, our our other guest this week, Michael Cox, his theory of just playing teams from a similar geographical area. So yeah. this is only what Australia, Samoa, Fiji, yeah. that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, we, we're definitely, definitely going to get stuck into that um, with with one eye on, on Euro twenty twenty. Um, but yes, thank you for introducing my my second guest. Rethink, reskill, reboot. He's not interested. He's making shitloads out of tactics. It's Michael Cox. <laughs> Thanks for that. All right. Yeah, that's very kind. Yeah, I, I'm interested in the New Zealand thing because there was a lot of fuss about what we're going to learn from playing New Zealand in a friendly. Whereas like, <laughs> this is an England side who hasn't beaten Trinidad and Tobago, Algeria and Costa Rica at recent tournaments. So, mm. yeah, a warm-up friendly against, you know... <laughs> A kind of lesser World Cup side sounded quite good to me. We have some small but very important issues to take care of first. Coxie, we need to squash this one straight away. Oh, well, let's get straight on to the clip, really. 4.5 XG is still quite high. I mean, mm. that is the recipe for a, you know, a real exciting game, if not necessarily a nine-goal thriller, as we had at Villa Park. 
This is obviously a deliberate wind-up. This is obviously a deliberate provocation. Uh, but I'm seeing more and more of this, uh, Coxie. The BBC are, are attempting to, to label such games as, as thrillers. What's going on? Look, if Liverpool had beaten Aston Villa 7-2, that's not a nine-goal thriller. But Aston Villa beating Liverpool 7-2... Mm, I think it's uh, I think it's almost acceptable, personally. No, no, I don't. I don't agree. I don't think that's where the thrill is derived. Obviously, it's it's in- incredibly amusing for neutrals and people who hate Liverpool to see them lose seven two. But I'm I'm not sure that's where thrill really originates. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to argue with you on on this kind of thing because you are the uh, you are the definitive source on this kind. Well, there's of thing. some basic maths that apply here. If it was six three, would that could that be a thriller? Yeah, there are some very grey areas here, but I think I've nailed it. Um, the goal difference in any thrashing cannot be more than 27.5% of the total <laughs> goals scored. Um, I did say it was 25%, but then someone pointed out that that would, that would rule out 7-4. I think it was Reading-Portsmouth, mm. which is obviously a thriller. So you're allowed that. So I increased it to 275 so that allows for a 7-4, but it doesn't allow for a 6-3. Okay. Because that would be 30%. So 6-3 is just outside of the threshold, which I think is fair enough, because that's just about more of a thrashing than I would say a thriller. Yeah, interesting. That's about right, yeah. But yeah, uh, a black mark for you, whether it was deliberate or not, um, <laughs> not impressed. Similarly unimpressive, of course, were the, were the England players attempting to sing the national anthem. I, I genuinely can't remember which game it was recently. It might have been Denmark, it might have been Wales, but here they are singing God Save the Queen. Charlie, I mean, I, I'm not hugely bothered about um, England players not belting out the national anthem, especially in an empty stadium. But my curiosity is more that I, I feel like there's a very special octave for players <laughs> half-heartedly singing national anthems. And uh, it is about as tuneless as it gets. Just kind of mumbling. Yeah. Once mine go, I remember in um, the 98 World Cup, I think it was Chile before they played Brazil and Zamorano mm. and those guys were just absolutely belting it out. And it was mm. um, it was really eye-opening about what a you know a national anthem could be, having, having been raised on a diet of that kind of <laughs> mumbling, uh, sort of out of tune... Uh, I would say singing, but that's maybe pushing it. Yeah, I mean, we are by law bound to describe God Save the Queen as a dirge, and it is a dirge. So, mm. I mean, South Americans just have it better, uh, more national pride, just better, better national anthems. Coxie, if, if you were an England international, what's your approach? Let, you know, take a standard, maybe, I don't know, like a group stage game at a tournament. What are you aiming for? Are you going for sort of Gary Neville stoicism, mouth shut? What's your plan? No, I'd mouth along without projecting too much <laughs> noise, I think. I mean... Uh, just lip syncing. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, my favourite kind of uh, England national anthem thing was, it was one of the times, maybe it was 2006 World Cup, where for some reason the organisers always played the second verse of God <laughs> Save the Queen. And I mean, I'd never heard of a second verse, so obviously no one knew the words. So hmm. they just did the whole song again, which I quite liked. Um, <laughs> and there's also the novelty, I think it's Lichtenstein. I was just going to say that, Lichtenstein, who, uh, yeah. Yeah, who, who have the same <laughs> tune, but obviously different words. Uh, and probably right. a different sentiment. I don't know, actually, oh, the, okay. the royalty. I remember finding that hilarious when we, we played them in, like, 2003 or something. And uh, Yeah. Did the England fans boo it? I don't, what happened <laughs> I think it? I think it sort of short-circuited the, the travelling fans. <laughs> didn't really know what to do. International football is our bag this week. Michael Cox, I just, I just want to get to the bottom 
first of all, of what constitutes international level. It, it, it's a concept that I think is just thrown around quite lazily in many different contexts. But what does international football mean to you now in, in, in the grand context of enjoying football? I treat the kind of friendlies and qualifications and I guess Nations League is almost like a necessary evil. I mean, the World Cup mm. is great. The European Championships yeah. is great. And you do have to have a qualification for that. Um, I must say, I do have some fondness for the days where, I mean, without wanting to get too complacent at the moment, you know, we have gone a decade without really having too many qualification worries. Some of the games where it was kind of do or die in terms of whether you'll make the tournament. I mean, Italy 0-0 away in 1997 was as exciting a game as I can remember being an England fan. And I think sometimes, you know, I wouldn't say we're too good because we haven't done it at the (laughs) tournaments themselves. But, you know, I think when you're probably a country who qualification means more than international football in itself probably means a bit more, if that makes sense. Fair enough. I mean, Charlie, I mean, we're never going to get rid of international football. As a concept, it's just too sound an idea. It's too established. It's, it's just too too good. It's, it's a nice distraction from club football. But my issue is I, I want to pinpoint the moment that club football just way outraced the international game. And, and I do wonder, it's because the, the concept in international football is, is, is good. It's the best of the best. And you're bringing together all these best players from the country. And at some point, that, that must have felt like a really good, you know, really eye-opening thing. All oh, these players coming together that they wouldn't normally do. And then obviously the club game completely outgrew it. And you had that fantasy all-star lineup anyway. So I guess that was the, the point where they kind of crossed over or kind of started moving away from each other. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I always thought as well, like, in around that period, and, and I don't know, yeah, I mean, when would we... I feel like once the 90s were over, um, mm. so international breaks did just feel like a real drag. As Coxie says, that that 97 qualifying, and I guess because we had, you know, the failure of not qualifying in 94, so it really yeah. felt like it, it, it meant a lot. I always just felt as well, like... In the Premier League, you knew exactly where you were and the games were well spread out and so you'd mm. get to see all the matches you wanted to see. And, and the international breaks, I don't know, it just felt like they all seemed to be happening at the same time. You couldn't really watch the best games. They weren't televised and that sort of thing. It just felt kind of hard um, hard to get your teeth into. I don't know. It's, it's almost. I, I feel it doesn't help in that they always seem to be playing exactly the same opponents. And I'm sure that's <laughs> yeah. not actually backed up by fact. But like, yeah, sure. how often have we played Denmark? Yeah, we seem to be playing them like the whole time. Um, um, and yeah, maybe think, there is something and you say like you have these all-star teams and that's just more interesting. I think on, on an emotional level, it's kind of understandable that we might start slowly falling out of love with international football outside of major tournaments, Michael. But on a technical level, I mean, th- there was a moment during the England-Belgium game where England were mounting an attack and they were, tr- they were trying to sort of um, perform a few sort of quick interchanges out, out on the wing and it just didn't come off. And... My instant thought when I watched that: so, if any mid-ranking Premier League side tried that, it would be it would be second nature to them. But this, I know it's a very obvious point, but on a, on a technical level, international football is just fighting a losing battle, isn't it? Because these players will just never ever have the same kind of comprehension with each other. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think without wanting to get too technical about it, I think the mm. the evolution of football into a real passing game and, and with very structured attacking moves has meant that. It's very difficult to find that cohesion at international level. And I think, again, without wanting to get too technical, I think probably the, the moment the big shift started was was the Bosman ruling in 95. I mean, yeah. in, doing some book research, I found a quote from Arrigo Saki uh, from 91 or 92 who, who said something along the lines of, the best international side will always be better than the best club side. Yeah, And that's when you can only have three foreign players, when mm. you could assemble almost a world 11 as a club side. 
Um, yeah. It was very different. I mean, I think it took a while, I think. I mean, the France side that won Euro 2000, I think, was possibly a better side than the Real Madrid side that won the European Cup that year. If we can identify a technical shift in, in both areas of the game, that's, that seems fairly fair to say. But some of these lingering kind of sentiments kind of remain, Charlie, because Dominic Calvert-Lewin scoring for England against Wales, I mean, I, there was instinctive sort of, it was instinctively heralded as him making the step up to international mm. level. And then when you're watching that, he's losing his marker, Joe Roden of Swansea, and nodding a fairly simple header past Wayne Hennessy of Crystal Palace. What constitutes mm. this step up? Why are we still talking about this? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. And even going back to like mid-noughties, when I remember when Peter Crouch was playing, he, he, yeah. he always felt like he had a much better scoring record for England than he did for most of his clubs. I, th- I think mm. the numbers would bear that out. And at the time, that felt counterintuitive, but I guess, as you say, it does make sense because you are playing teams often of a lot lower standard than you would be than you would be in the Premier League. And but but I can see why there's a romantic uh, sense still we have that you know international football is kind of a level above. I guess the the scale of it, we still feel like you're playing at Wembley and that kind of thing. But but actually, it's interesting because in the COVID time, even you know you take that away because it's still behind closed doors there are no fans so there's not the mm. the added pressure I, I guess mainly as well with England part of it is because so many players haven't been as good for the national teams they have been for their club maybe it's just a relief that you know they're not what's that expression the, the shirt weighs heavy on them so, you know, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't weighing too heavy on Calvert-Lewin it seemed uh, more specifically, Michael, when it comes to the step up to international level, there is, again, this kind of lingering kind of accepted wisdom that um, there is a certain kind of goal scoring ratio at international level that, that, that's considered to be very good. Like It's just like in Serie A. If you've got one in two, you know, that's, that's, that's a very solid goal scoring record <laughs> when the numbers just completely don't back that up. You look at look at the list of players who have scored 50 or more international goals. Their ratios are wild. Um Ali Dai, of course, being the um, <laughs> being the standout exception, he he remains the the world record holder for international goals with a hundred odd, and also um, has the dubious honour of having his YouTube montage set to James Morrison's "You Give Me Something." <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. I just yeah, I just he must be pretty proud to be Ali Dai at that level. But isn't Stern but, John? Isn't he another one with like a crazy yeah, good international yeah, record? Exactly, and um, but. Michael, I mean, this is, this is just nonsense. Goal-scoring records um, at international level are way beyond one in two. That's that's not the benchmark anymore. Yeah, you're right. And I think it, it varies so much based upon partly what confederation you're playing in, which is why Ronaldo reaching 100 in Europe, I think, is particularly special. Not that we don't have our, our minnows, but the qualification process means you, you only play them maybe two or four times every kind of qualification cycle. It seems like... Old school strikers do a little bit better at international level. I mean, yeah. Giroud becoming France's second all-top, all-time top uh, mm. goal scorer. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. The sentiment around international breaks, and this one in particular where we're playing, uh, or some teams are playing three times in an international break, Charlie, it seems to have kind of accelerated this kind of weariness towards the international break. I've I've seen some people, you know, sincerely and earnestly say, I can't wait for the real football to come back, which which is a sentiment (laughs) I perfectly understand. Should we not kind of scale this back a bit and dial this back a bit and start maybe starting to enjoy England games, England friendlies? There must be some value to them. 
Yeah, I mean, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even anti-England. I just, it, it, friendlies and that sort of thing, it just does kind of pass me by. I, I just can't yeah. really muster that much enthusiasm for them. And, and I get, you know, I think at this time, I think most people understand that these games have to be, in the same way that the reason Premier League games have been played, because teams need the money and federations need the money and stuff. So, you know, I'm not someone who's saying that, Slovenia or other teams shouldn't get games of course they should that's fine but I I do struggle with England friendlies I think it's just I've been burnt I mean I because I used to against my better judgment often quite look look forward to England friendlies and qualifiers and then they'd always follow a really similar pattern and after about 20 minutes I'd be like oh wow why did I watch this afterwards did you say what have we learned but what have we learned what have we learned (laughs) that was a running trope for England friendlies from sort of no maybe the late 90s onwards, Michael. But I actually think that predated quite comfortably the five things we learned format. So maybe maybe it was a perfectly natural progression. Five things we learned were simply answering a question that we've been asking for 10 years. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting, actually. I mean, I'd never considered that before, but that's that's spot on. The England friendlies were always seen as, yeah, very much a learning exercise. This is probably rose tinted specs, but I do remember some great moments from England friendlies mm. in the 90s. I mean, the Marcelo Salas goal... Um, yeah. Rene Higuita's scorpion kick. You know, yeah. you just don't get scorpion kicks in friendlies anymore, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no. no I, I'm don't. very. I'm. I'm thinking that Nadir Moore was a bit late in that. That kind of Sven era when you get eleven changes at half time and you get David Dunn coming on on the left wing. Yeah, it's got this idea that games suddenly become fragmented by eleven substitutes, and it and it, it kind of. I, I sympathise with the idea. I mean, maybe this is a traditional traditionalist approach, Charlie, but this idea that if you get an international cap by coming on as one of the sort of 11 second half substitutes, it kind of sullies the idea of becoming an England international. <laughs> Perhaps the true nadir was uh, the friendly against Peru at Wembley in 2014, where the where the standout incident was a paper aeroplane being launched from the uh, upper tier yeah. and uh, landing on the head of a Peruvian defender to... Uh, I, I watched the video of this earlier, and uh, the the crowd noises from that seat didn't sound like a football game at all. It's, it it just felt like someone at a, a music festival, and it, it felt very unfootball. On the other hand, I've tweeted about this approximately three hundred times in my life, but there are examples, even recentish examples, of incredible England friendlies. Here, for one minute, is everything you could possibly want to hear from England versus Argentina in Geneva in two thousand and five. Mm. Rooney, can England win it at the last? Owen's there again. Beckham! Oh, the goalkeeper saved it, Trout! Oh, goodness! I thought Beckham had got the winner! <laughs> I can't believe that. He did everything right. Wayne Rooney picked the ball up. Now Argentina on the attack. Oh, it's put through by Saviola and it's Cruz! <laughs> no penalty. <laughs> Referee waves it away. Cruz was looking for one. What a climax! In the first minute of stoppage time now. Rooney for England. Joe Cole. Crouch comes in far side. But the, oh, then we've got it. England have scored again. It's Michael Owen. It's 3-2. Owen. Oh, Owen 2 in a matter of minutes. What an amazing finish in Geneva. <laughs> Michael Owen there again, and Argentina are deflated. They're standing around looking at each other, and they don't know where the lead has gone, and they don't know where the match has gone. But it's gone to England. Coxie, that entire minute sounds like a sort of World Cup quarter-final. This was genuine excitement. 
Yeah, I'm afraid I can't enjoy that because I watched the first 80 minutes of this game and then <laughs> had to leave to go and see the subways at the London Astoria. And um, it's, yeah, it seems like the last notable England friendly moment that, uh, that ever happened. And I missed it, I'm afraid. Well, it does at least sound like the most 2005 moment possible. So uh, <laughs> yeah. congratulations for that. Charlie, I mean, we're talking about that kind of tipping point of where we stopped caring about England in a, in a non-competitive context. And maybe this was it because I remember, I, I'm pretty sure I was in a pub watching this and just celebrating, like hugging people because it was just, it felt mm. like a genuinely big moment against against all my better judgments. This was a kind of FIFA-pleasing, uh, friendly in Geneva of all places. Uh, it should have been very sterile. And then... Less well, roughly a year later, I remember distinctly laughing as Robert Green got injured taking a goal kick for England B against Belarus at the Medeski Stadium, and I just don't see how those two things tally up as my appreciation of England. But fundamentally, that's just a wonderful minute of football. You don't even need to watch; you can just hear it. Motson actually quite good there, I think. I was thinking, yeah, it's a shame there wasn't a Three Lions 2006 song because that would have been perfect to splice in yeah. between uh, Badil and Skinner. Yeah, I remember being yeah. so excited by that game and it genuinely uh, making me believe that we were going to win the World Cup. <laughs> More on England, Coxie. I, I feel like this might be a matter slightly close to your heart. I'm sure we've talked about this before, which is New England call-ups being slightly convinced that, uh, that it was all a wind-up. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my my first question to you, and an important question is, um, how would you go about winding some up about an international call up, and and more importantly, who would you choose as your target? I feel like it's an important <laughs> thing because you need to choose someone that would be kind of mm. inc- suitably incredulous about it, but believable. Um, is it mean to say I'd choose Mark Noble to wind up? About me? <laughs> <laughs> just, That's cruel. I How many times do you reckon he's had that call off West Ham teammates? I just think it matters more to him than anyone. Um, yeah, I mean, oh. when when you said this, I had to go back and flick through Robert Perez's autobiography, which I went through recently, because there's a great sentence in it here, which I think is a, a slight variation on the usual theme. Um, he says... Then at the end of summer 1996, thanks to the progress I'd made at Mets, I was selected for the full France team. My wife, who was working for local radio, saw a press release announcing the squad and called me in the car. At first, I thought it was a wind up. But when I got home, I turned on the telly and it was true. So he he doesn't (laughs) believe the new source of his own wife, who is seemingly a professional journalist. But he does trust the TV. I just I haven't heard it coming from a wife before. This is just a drop in the ocean of stories I hear about footballers finding out very important news by sort of strange methods like CFAX or whatever that. Surely there must be a more efficient way, Charlie, of letting someone know that they've been called up to the England squad. A more secure, kind of hoax-safe way of letting someone know that they've been called up to England. But but this is what I find so funny is that I, I think we talked about this on Twitter maybe a couple of years ago, the three of mm. us. Like, you don't really hear about the ones that actually are wind You only hear... <laughs> do you know what I Like, I want to hear about the England players who didn't play and genuinely mm. were wound up. You only hear about the yes. ones who they thought erroneously it was a wind-up. But who, I know that are, like, who are these people who, like Mark Noble, who f- f- had those beautiful few minutes thinking it was real and then uh, only to be kind of horrifically let down? It's perfectly viable dressing room banter. I mean, we, we, we seem to be mo- we seem to have moved on from the days of burning each other's clothes or clobber, as we as we should call it. Um, it seems like <laughs> perfectly um, sort of PG thirteen rated um, football club banter. Um, in terms of other examples of this phenomenon, you can, you can have quite humble ones. Back in two thousand twelve, Southport's Andy Owens found about found out about his call up to England C via a teammate who had read it on a fan's message board online. I still wasn't sure if he was winding me up or not, but I Googled it yesterday and saw I had been called up. So all's well that ended well for Andy Owen back in 2012. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. There are other kind of preoccupations when it comes to England in particular. Michael, One Cap Wonders, which I feel like is, is, a, is a top 10 list, a perennial top 10 list. It's a very much a go-to. You could, you could write that anytime you liked. Um, but but I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of one cap wonders. I feel like you've earned just a, a special place in international football history with that. Yeah, it's almost more exciting to get one cap than two, I think, because you'll appear in these yes. lists, won't you? Mm. Yeah, my, my personal favourite was... Um, it's because I think there was a reason why he got this call-up, and that's Carl Jenkinson, who <laughs> moved to Arsenal and had previously played for the Finland under-19 mm. under-21 sides. And there was some kind of movement to give him a cap to kind of encourage him to play for the three Lions. So his international career goes uh, 2010 Finland under-19s, 2011 Finland under-21s, 2012 <laughs> England, 2013 to 15 England, under, and then it stops there. So it wasn't really a kind of necessary call-up. And I think it was in that Sweden game, I think there's Latan Ibrahimovic uh, bicycle oh. kick game, mm. where I think other one-cat wonders from that game included... Both Ryan Shawcross, who ended up in the back of the net trying to fish out the uh, oh, God, kick, yeah. and also Wilfred Zaha, who of course, uh, ah. yeah, went went oh, to play yeah. elsewhere. The Athletics James Moore also suggests Charlie as as a man who had a slightly baffling England existence was Ian Walker. Nine years, four caps, three managers, two major tournaments, and one hairstyle. <laughs> nice. I, I forget he was part. He was part of the Euro two thousand four squad. Yeah, that's that's, that's bizarre, the score isn't breaker, isn't it? Ian Walker yeah. being in the yeah. <laughs> when he was at Leicester, I think he was part of the yeah. team that just been relegated really what badly. What are you doing here? Um, <laughs> lending his experience to the squad, good man to have around the dressing room. Coxie, I'm I'm forever fascinated by the concept of England B, and I, I'm I'm slightly disappointed it doesn't exist anymore. But perhaps there is a theory that it isn't needed. The under twenty ones are just brim full of talent and we just don't need it there must be something behind it but there is a quiet dignity behind getting a single England B cap I was at a certain level yeah I've got a theory that people would actually enjoy watching the England B team more than the England team because I think (laughs) whoever's in the England team people just seem like slightly sick of watching them and just want England to move on even if the average age is about 24 or something you're like oh we've got to bring through the next generation I mean just from judging what people say on Twitter People are yeah. not that interested in forming a solid centre-back partnership, but they are interested in who does better between Madison and Grealish. And if yeah. they're not getting in the England side, you know, put them in an England B side and people can get excited about that. Well, that leads us on very, very nicely to what I consider to be the centrepiece, the glorious centrepiece of today's episode, which is let's choose our England B11. We should lay down some criteria straight away. Tom Parks has, has waded in with, with his little theory. He says England B must consist of no so-called big six players and at least one championship newly promoted player plus four uncapped players. That, that all sounds relatively sound. It's, and it's, it's just a very... It's a very distinct place to be, England B, or it was, Charlie. And and I feel like we should nail this straight away. We're talking about players who've perhaps outgrown under-21s. Quite literally, they are just too old for the under-21s. They may not, may not be just too good. They're just too old. And you're kind of... You're not making waves at domestic level, but you're a solid operator. 
that that's kind of where I'm aiming for here. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, they were often there was. I mean, I I always think Matt Letizier scoring that hat trick for the England B team yeah, that, just before the '98 World thing. Cup. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, was, or, that that game essentially took place to give him a chance to impress Glenn Hoddle. He's got a complete outlier. Yeah, we, we don't really have any Matt Letizia's, I don't think, in our upcoming eleven. But um, but he's a complete outlier when it came to England B. The rest of them were mediocre in the most in the most endearing sense. I don't want this to turn into the too good to be championship, not good enough for the Premier League eleven, which got us <laughs> in all sorts of um, uh, provincial bother. So uh, I I I. I I don't think we're going to get quite as controversial here, but I do think we need to nail it. So goalkeepers, I've got some names to throw at you. Let's see what we go with. I thought Carl Darlow, but he's perhaps too old. He's 30. Aaron Ramsdale, but he's in the under-21s now, yeah. so that doesn't work. Tom Heaton. Would Jack Butland, he, he kind of feels like he's been in the I squad. Feel, I feel like he's completely out of the picture now. Just too too far gone. Perhaps if he moves, if he gets back to the Premier League, I think he's definitely into England B Churchy. Other names I've got Freddie Woodman, Marcus Bettinelli. Maybe wow, Tom Heaton. That's a good one. But Heaton, he's been in the England setup, hasn't he? And I, I think that's okay. You're allowed to have played for England. Okay. I mean, having a glance back at some of the squads from the early 90s, you're allowed to have been with England, but maybe not really established yourself. But he was a squad regular, so maybe not him. How do we feel about Marcus Bettinelli? Coxie, are you on board? Yeah, did he get a call up to the, he got a call up to the squad, didn't he? But maybe didn't play. So that's perfect for England B for me. Yeah. yeah. And it was like an emergency call up, wasn't it? Kind of was like, oh yeah, can you just if you can make it that kind of that deal? Okay, I'm happy with him in goal. Well done to Marcus Bettinelli. And um, this is a four three three formation, as all these elevens are, just so you can have more strikers than normal at right back. <laughs> my name here is Kyle Walker Peters. Yeah, interesting. I had George Baldock down for that. I think after his oh. uh, his his first Premier League campaign, he might have got a, a look in at right back. Uh, I, I googled the wrong Sheffield United fullback. I googled Chris Basham, and, okay. and I've obviously got him mixed up with 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 Bulldog. Is that well, right? It's an over. It's an overlapping centre back. So I'll give you that, Adam. I think okay. you can get away with that. Yeah. Yeah. Basham's like thirty two, so he can't be in this. I'm afraid. But Bulldog's a very good shout, actually. Um, other other candidates would have been James Justin or Callum Chambers. Yeah, both solid choices. Uh, who are we going with? Charlie, you can have the casting vote here. That is that is a tough one. I mean, there are so many right backs in the main England squad that you are you're sort of mm. going quite a way down. I, I like Walker Peters as um, a shout. You know, yeah. he's kind of a, yeah, a bright young thing who maybe hasn't quite exactly. kicked on, but still still has a, a potentially bright future. Yeah, the emphasis should always be on promise, just about rather than just filling gaps. So Walker Peters, yeah, you're in. And he's, he's, a, he's a modern enough fullback, so that sounds it. Left back, some good competition here. I was thinking Ryan Sessegnon because... As promising as he is, his career's kind of stagnated slightly in a in a relative sense, uh, Charlie. I also have Matt Target. I mean, Sessegnon still plays a lot for the under-21s. Um, yeah. He's it's it's 20, weird. He? Even, yeah, he's one of those who kind of, a bit like I remember Trevor Sinclair seemingly always playing for the under-21s. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, <laughs> seemingly till he was about 30. Um, mm. So, yeah, I don't know if, if that counts against Sessegnon or... No, I'm um, happy to take him out for that on that basis alone. So that I mean, leaves us with Matt Target, Coxie, and Joe Bryan. Yeah, Bryan was another one I had. But, I mean, if, if we're going to pick the England B team on the same criteria as the England team, it's just got to be a right back, hasn't it? So I just go Rob Holding at left back, you know. You've got, <laughs> you've got to have a solid philosophy that continues from the England B team <laughs> no! to the England team. No, I'm not buying this kind of philosophy that comes up through the edges. England B exists in its own little microclimate. It doesn't have to have that. It's just about getting 11 players out 
and fulfilling whatever the reason is for that particular fixture. So, no, I'm sticking with Joe Bryan. I'm not, I'm, I'm not having a right-footed left-back in my pretending... Rob, Rob Holding, though, is a great shout for a centre-back berth. I mean, he feels yeah. right up this... Uh, I mean, he's actually... He's 25. He feels like he's uh, right in the England B strata. Okay. Currently typing his name into my into the slots for centre-backs, where the competition, <laughs> I have to say, is red-hot. Um, first centre-back slot. Um, Coxie, here, here are the names I've got. Mason Holgate, Ben Mee... Esri Consa and Adam Webster. And I, I say Adam Webster without actually remembering whether he plays for Bournemouth or Brighton. But, yeah, him. Yeah, no, I, Adam, I mean, I had... <laughs> I, I had, had Adam, Ben Mee written down as well. <laughs> Good. I, I had uh, Adam Webster alongside his Brighton teammate, Lewis Dunk, who has won one England yeah. cap. But yeah, I feel like... Oh, he has is, he? Okay. Yeah, I, think, I feel like oh. centre-back is quite a kind of... Fertile ground for England B because I think England mm. produces like slightly <laughs> old school centre backs who probably don't quite have the quality for international football. But every fan of those clubs really thinks that like their player should be in the England side, which is kind of what. Yeah, that's England such a good shout. What about Dan Burns being of Brighton? Yeah. Oh, okay. The giant. So he, he actually plays as a left back for them, despite yeah. being about six foot seven. But he, yeah. he feels right in the England B uh, wheelhouse. Given that this is a kind of partnership situation, I feel like you you move away from the promising aspect of it. You want an old head. So I would say Ben Mee as as the first one, as kind of the steady head. You're not going to get a full cap, but by Jove, are you going to bring through our youngsters? So he's, <laughs> he's first of all. Um, but having said that, I want to blow that theory apart and not have a youngster next in because um, uh, as Coxie pointed out, Lewis Dunk is England B. He personifies everything about England's England B, despite having him one full cap. So I'm happy to have a kind of me dunk partnership in the heart of my defence. Are we happy with that? Yep. This three man midfield doesn't, um, as with all these pretend 11s, doesn't worry too much about the defensive side. But um, Mark Noble is our captain. Are we all happy mm. with that? <laughs> mm. I was going to say, he feels like a shoe in. Yeah. yeah, he's he he sneaks in uh, Charlie just ahead of Ross Barkley, Ruben Loftus Cheek, James Ward Prowse, Hamza Chowdhury, Ainsley Maitland Niles, and Lewis Cook. He's our kind of just he's our holder. He makes everything tick, and he'll wear the armband and he'll sing the anthem, and it'll make just the whole thing seem fairly authentic. So that's that. And he has he has a point to prove after Coxie's wind up as well. Yeah, in a more attacking sense, um, Dwight McNeil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did I did think about him. He he's quite a good prospect, isn't he? Mm, yeah, maybe he's too young. Uh, Nathan Redmond, on the other hand, seems a bit too old. I think he's sort of edging towards his late 20s. So a happy medium. How about Damari Gray? Yeah, that's I, yeah I, thought, I, th- I think Redmond, he's 26. I think Redmond could uh, mm. could do a job. Southampton okay. are quite quite good for this, it feels like. Southampton are England B, aren't they? Uh, just historically, <laughs> I think it's a bit shout. As our kind of playmaker in midfield, I've got James Madison, Tom Davies and Todd Cantwell as options. <laughs> yeah, I like all those. I think Cantwell, Cantwell definitely would have been in their last season. Kind of would have, ho- would have hoped he played once for England B and got the full call up, but might be yeah. in England B for two or three years, I think. Perfect. You want some championship representation in there as well, because you have to have a little hint of the cream of the championship in your England B squad. Anyway, up front, uh, this is where it gets very exciting. Um, uh, this is a slam dunk for me, Charlie. Jared Bowen. Hmm. Yeah. I, I had to check, obviously, that he <laughs> hadn't you. played for Scotland already, or Wales, or Northern Ireland, but because uh, he just sounds like he should have done, but he hasn't. Jared Bowen is um, um, running down the flanks for my attack. Callum Wilson? Yeah. Yes. 
I've got him penciled in as my centre forward, Coxie. Um, uh, Tammy Abraham, I've got listed, but that feels a bit that feels a bit harsh, so I'll leave him out. Che Adams. Yeah, that's a good one in the sense that he was regarded yeah. as promising, good in the championship, hasn't quite done it in the uh, in the Premier League. Yeah, no, I'd go along but with what that. What about Ollie Watkins raiding Southampton? What about Ollie Watkins? Yeah, Ollie, though, Wa- Charlie? Ollie Watkins is a good shout. Yeah, Oof, I think uh, the thorny issue of Ollie Watkins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting. <laughs> this is the sort of debate you have when you're picking your England B team. Anyway, yeah, he's my choice, and that leaves uh, flying down the other flank, Callum Hudson Odoi. Yeah, given that extra that. chance to stake his claim. Yeah, uh, can I just say in my England B side, uh, Stephen Alzate controversially turned down a call up to go and play for <laughs> Colombia. <laughs> To much consternation okay. amongst tabloid newspapers. Yes, we need to have someone who turned it down, Chris Sutton style. Um, yeah, yeah. That, I was thinking that. Yeah. I think that Sutton was for that same game, the, the Letizia Hattrick oh, game. Yeah, the down. only England B game that anyone has ever talked about. Which <laughs> yeah. is, uh, uh, when someone held up a banner saying, please hod pick Le God on a bed sheet. <laughs> Uh, one final, very important point to wrap up this this fascinating look into our pretend England B11. Which stadium are they playing at, Charlie? Loftus Road. It doesn't feel grand enough. I feel like we need one of those kind of Lego new builds. Oh, I I mean, Majeski, Majeski, maybe. I think that's actually. Do you know where? um, Do you know where the last England B game was played? This is May two thousand seven. Do you know where it was played? Uh, Portman Road. Slightly surprisingly, Turf Moor. Oh. And um, so this is May two thousand seven. Can I quickly read you out the the guys who played in this team? Please. So Scott Carson. Phil Neville, Phil Jagielka, Michael Dawson, Ledley King, Nicky Shorey, Jolene Lescott, David Bentley, Jermaine Defoe, Jermaine Genus, Gareth Barry, Stephen Taylor, Aaron Lennon, Stuart Downing, Michael Owen, Alan Smith and Kieran Dyer. Wow. Michael Owen. Michael Owen, England B. Yeah. That does feel odd, doesn't it? Yeah. That was like non-canonical England B right on its last legs, not sticking true to the... The, the real I like Nikki Shorey being in there. That feels yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. That that feels right. I think the ideal location would be a newly built ground that's outside the top flight. So I would say Brentford's new ground. Being in London isn't ideal, but somewhere like that, a new ground for a slightly smaller club, I think, would be ideal England B territory. Yeah, I think you're absolutely mm. right. Good shout. Other kind of England team curiosities, and, and and this this is kind of tied up in bureaucratic legislation coxie but um oh the the intermittent stories of um seven out of ten foreign premier league players becoming <laughs> qualified to, for england duty um some very odd names have always popped up Mikel arteta i mean a, a good player obviously manuel almunia did we need manuel almunia at any stage <laughs> um adnan yanazai who at some stage w- was eligible for about 15 different countries uh he was mooted to be you know perhaps in line or to qualify for england um but this, none of these were actually actually possible. Am I right? Maybe I should have researched this. But anyway, no, I think they were. I think I think I think Arteta and Almunia were. They they were kind of on course to get British citizenship. So I think could have could actually have played. It's slightly it's slightly com- complex with Britain, isn't it? Because technically, yeah. if they get t- a citizenship, they mm. could then play for any of the four home nations. <laughs> for Wa- Almunia for Wales. So there's basically a gentleman's agreement between. Uh, mm. England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland to basically not do this because I think then they could just poach each other's players, couldn't they? 
Because, yeah, you exactly. know, technically, if you know, I've lived in Britain for five years, so I could play for Northern Ireland, uh, which wouldn't make any sense because I've, I've only been there twice and have no family members from it. So, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're at a disadvantage by uh, splitting our country into four, aren't I think, we, really? I think this gentleman's agreement, it dates back to about 1993. It basically tapped into this, this weird eternal fear that FIFA are going to one day turn around and say, do you know what? This is all a bit weird. You're all going to have to play as one team. I'm sorry. It's people, I think, like the Northern Irish FA in particular, they're genuinely terrified that that's going to happen one day. That FIFA is going to say, "Look, enough of this crap." All right, you're, you're one team. You're going to have to play as one team. And uh, I think that's what this gentleman agreement is kind of based on. On this note, it's worth pointing out that the story of Mike Taylor. I think I'm sure mm. are you familiar with this. So, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to read the bit from Wikipedia. Taylor was born in Germany to an English father and a German mother. As a British citizen who was born abroad, eligibility rules at the time of Taylor's first international selection entitled him to represent any of the constituent countries <laughs> of the United Kingdom at international level. He opted for no- Northern Ireland despite having no family connection to that country. And he then played 88 times. He, he, wow, he had I no knew that. relation to Northern Ireland whatsoever, but he was forced with this choice, thought... You know, I'll look at the countries, Northern Ireland, I've got the best chance of playing for them. They haven't got much in goal and played for them 88 times. He was essentially perusing a menu and he's just thinking, which one, which one, which one am I going to be have the best chance with? That, that's so cynical. That's a cynical way to launch your international career. Yeah. And I mean, he really loved it because he, he made a, he made an emergency return to the squad in June 2015 at the age of 43. Uh, mm. by which time he hadn't played professionally for about two or three years. So, you know, he obviously wasn't Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Irish in terms of birth, but he absolutely loved playing for them. Huge fan of 40-something goalkeepers being drafted back in for emergency reasons in pretty much any context whatsoever. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. As far as international curiosities go, as far as the home nations go, I feel like this might be the ultimate. Uh, You may remember former Nottingham Forest striker David Johnson. Here's his story in about as brief way as I can tell it. Born in Jamaica to an English mother, played for England schoolboys, then was called up to England under-21s but didn't play, then played for nine minutes for England B. Of course, it was against against Russia in that Loftus Road game for Matt and Tissier purposes in 1998. Then played four friendlies for Jamaica in 1999, which meant he was still edu- eligible to play for another country. He then rejected a call-up for Northern Ireland, then joined up with Wales, but got injured and didn't play. <laughs> then was approached by Scotland, but then it was emer- then it emerged that he wasn't eligible for any home nation other than England because his mother was English, and that was due to the UK agreement. Then he was called up by Jamaica in 2000. Then Northern Ireland tried to call him up again in 2004. He wasn't eligible. What a mess. Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, incredible. Yes. I, li- I yeah. like as well I the think- Jamaica link. I, I, I just want to mention that kind of mm. that World Cup 98. But all of a sudden you had all these players playing for Jamaica. It was like if Premier League years had formed a nation and sent them off to World <laughs> Cup. That's, that's the squad you would get. I actually have a vaguely amusing story in that, which was that I once found myself sat next to uh, Robbie Earl on a train going to London Waterloo in about 2010. And we started talking about the World Cup. And uh, I mentioned the fact that he was part of that Jamaica side 
in uh, 1998, and I said, "Oh, that was a, that was a great time. It was a great squad you had, wasn't it? And you, uh, Marcus Gale, and then I couldn't <laughs> think of any other names. And he just he just finished my sentence by saying, "Yeah, we didn't have many good players, did we?" <laughs> oh. Oh, Dion Burton. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Dion Burton. Frank Sinclair, Frank Sinclair yeah. was there. Yeah, they had they had mm. some decent players, to be fair. International journey managers. Coxie sort of managers who sort of disappear and go on these random world tours managing different countries. A kind of philosophical question arises here. Should countries be allowed to hire foreign managers at all? Shouldn't you have to qualify for the nation that you manage, just like a player? Yeah, I'm slightly sympathetic to to that view, actually. It does seem slightly odd sometimes. I mean, there was a... There was a story recently that Max Allegri was linked with the Dutch job, and I'm... <laughs> that seems wrong. Ooh, that feels weird. I'm accustomed to national sides being managed by foreigners, but Italy and Holland just seems like a combination that absolutely doesn't mix. So I was yeah. I was deeply troubled by that in a way that I wasn't so much with, um, you know, Lars Lagerback managing Norway, which is of course entirely normal. Can I give you who I think is like the uh, just. Uh, peerless in this regard, a kind of international journeyman manager. This is Bora Militinovic. Mm. I'll probably pronounce that wrong. He has managed Mexico, Costa Rica, the US, Mexico again, Nigeria, China, Honduras, Jamaica, and Iraq. I mean, that is an incredible... I mean, obviously, he's got that America and Central America tied up, but that's a that's an amazing Adaptability spread. 20 on Championship Manager. I mean, also, in, in, in kind of yeah, like geopolitical terms, to have managed America and Iraq, fair play to him. Yeah, yeah, yes. He, yeah, he, the Henry Kissinger of... And, uh, and China as well. Mm. He's kind of like Allardycean, I guess. He's just kind of seen as the international football firefighter. You might not need to be in crisis, but if you need someone, Boro Militinovic is, is, is your man. But it, it's weird to me, Charlie, that there are some managers who focus purely on the international game and don't really seem to have any interest in being club managers. I mean, um, it, it makes me wonder if there are some club managers out there who just miss the month-to-month buzz of international <laughs> football. <laughs> it's like, I can't be bothered yeah. with this. I just want to, I want a game every three months. I want a, I want a permanent season ticket to every Premier League game and I just want to sit and watch football. Uh, I'm sure it's more demanding than that. Um, yeah, I really just don't enjoy the day-to-day. I just don't yeah, like seeing exactly. my players all the time. Yeah. Just yeah. Sporadic Leave is, me is alone. better for me. I mean, my my, my favourite example here, and I've just mentioned him, is Lars Lagerbach, who has been almost continually employed in football management for the last few decades, but hasn't actually been at a club since 1989. So he had yeah. five years of Sweden under 21, two Sweden B, two as Sweden assistant, nine for Sweden, one for Nigeria, five for Iceland and now three for Norway and has never seemingly once never thought about going to a club. He, he can't have managed that many games, can he? No, I reckon, he, I reckon he's literally forgotten how to literally run a club on a daily basis. This is, you know, where he'd be useless. He just disappears for three months. Where's he gone? I don't know. I don't know how to do this anymore. Um, uh, some listener suggestions. I, I had forgotten about this one. And Andy Cumella says, Harry Redknapper's Jordan manager seems to be forgotten about. Two matches, an 8-0 win and a 5-1 defeat. And as Sam uh, points out, the baffling part of this is he didn't take Joe Jordan as his assistant. How could he possibly have resisted? Uh, I, I don't remember this at all. Tool. <laughs> I do have a vague memory of that. I mean, in, in the depths. I mean, obviously, the the issue there, in in stereotypical terms, anyway, would be that he's a manager you know, synonymous with transferring players, and you don't really get that that luxury. Well, you're going to call him a wheeler dealer there. I'm really glad you didn't. No, I would. Ne- I would never. I would never go down that route. <laughs> Uh, the idea of him sort of going around the uh, the Middle East, see if anyone's got any sort of Jordanian um, um, 
parent it's just to just get them in uh, before the squad announcement deadline lovely thought coxie i know you've been you've been desperate to talk about this this taps into a lot of things we talk about on this podcast which is kind of just this accepted wisdom in football doing things a certain way just because this is how it's always been done and Let's talk about pre-tournament friendlies for England. Yeah, absolutely. So as everyone has probably figured out by now, the only way you prepare for, you know, <laughs> a World Cup game against a side from a particular country is by playing one of their neighbours in, in a warm-up <laughs> friendly. So, yeah, I'm sorry to say I went back through all the England World Cups this century. And um, mm. I mean, I'll start by saying you don't have to prepare for another European nation. They're in Europe. You know them. But yeah, yeah going okay. chronologically, we prepared for Argentina by playing Paraguay, prepared for Nigeria by playing Cameroon, prepared for Paraguay by playing Uruguay, prepared for Trinidad and Tobago by, of course, playing Jamaica. Um, played uh, Algeria was Egypt, USA prepared by playing Mexico. And it just goes <laughs> on and on and on. I mean, Uruguay for Ecuador, Co- Costa Rica yeah. for Honduras is a great one. And yeah. then maybe my favourite is for 2018 Panama. We, of course, played Costa Rica, um, <laughs> as did so, all other three, all the other two sides in oh, our group. Yes. So, yeah. So, I mean, at best, this is just kind of lazy thinking, maybe. At worst, it's borderline problematic, isn't it? I think something <laughs> like uh, playing Jamaica just to prepare yourself for Trinidad and Tobago sounds genuinely, yeah. genuinely worrying. Yeah, I mean, but. I was wondering whether this is an English thing or not. So I actually took the example of Trinidad and Tobago and looked at their warm-up friendlies for that same group. Um, And so they warmed up for Paraguay by playing Peru. They warmed up for (laughs) Sweden by playing Iceland and warmed up for playing England by playing Wales. So clearly it's just a a global thing. Just playing devil's advocate, Coxie, is there any benefit? I mean, do, you know, can you see any logic in doing this? Do teams sometimes play similarly to their (laughs) neighbours? Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably more relevant kind of 20 or 30 years ago when there were much more kind of regional variations in footballing style. Mm. I mean, I, I remember footballers in the 90s did talk about, wow, you go to South America and it's just a completely different style of football. It, it probably means less these days. But maybe it does make sense for a side like, uh, I don't know, Trinidad and Tobago probably haven't encountered a playing against an African side before. So maybe that helps playing a North American side, whatever. You know, the the regional um, confederation qualification system means, I guess, you don't usually play sides from other continents. So I guess it might. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there could be some slightly more intelligent thinking. <laughs> I mean, the last World Cup was great for it. I mean, the group with Portugal, Spain, Morocco and Iran, clearly everyone saw Morocco as the danger. So all three sides played Tunisia, uh, in their warm-up <laughs> matches, it's just just going to a map and saying who do they share a border with? Absolutely, because it's geographical, isn't it? It's, it's literally who are they neighbours? Oh, yeah, God, I, don't, just... I don't. I'm not sure whether there's an athletic article to be written on this, but I was chatting to uh, Matt Scott, who works for Talksport, and he was telling me about all these international match agents and how as soon as the World Cup draw happens. These yeah. guys are just phoning up saying, look, I can get you so-and-so's neighbour in a warm-up friendly, which just sounds like a fascinating job. Oh, this is interesting because they presumably are the people responsible for these slightly baffling, well, not that baffling, but um, curious looking friendlies that are held at Loftus Road every six months. <laughs> um, and uh, I think they're just a wonderful subgenre of international friendly, Charlie, because they seem to involve either Australia, Nigeria, Jamaica, Ghana or South Africa. Um, or perhaps New Zealand, um, and then just played at one stadium somewhere in in southwest London. Um, here are some examples, uh, actually, br- to broaden this this field of teams: Argentina versus Croatia at Upton Park in November two thousand and fourteen. A fixture yep. I have zero recollection of. 
Oh, I went to that. And the most incredible thing about that was there seemed to be about 20,000 West Ham fans there just to see Carlos Tevez. And <laughs> he could not have given less of a toss about going back to Robson <laughs> Park. I can guarantee you. He basically got a standing ovation when he was substituted and did not make any effort to acknowledge it at all. It was fantastic. Nice. I have um, a vague recollection, well, no, actually very vivid re- uh, recollections of going to see USA versus Columbia at Craven Cottage in November 2014, because that's one of the, the two games in my life where I've managed to head the ball out of the stand after it flew out of the off the pitch. Um, You've done that really twice. Nice- I've, I've been yeah, waiting twice. all my life yeah. to do it once. Uh, it, it, it comes down to technical ability, Charlie. It comes down to positioning, reading the game. <laughs> And just had it's to amazing. be sat in the right seat. I guess as well. Yeah, once you once you've done it once, you know it's it's that bit easier, isn't it? You're, com- yeah, you're more confident. Yeah. It's like he just a needed, second he, child. Yeah. Well, he just needed one to come in and go off his ass, didn't he? And then <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah, which wouldn't count. Just to be absolutely clear, <laughs> let's race through some listener suggestions for what could be the most held at Loftus Road international friendly. Jamie Duncan suggests Australia versus Jamaica. Alistair Long, Nigeria versus Japan at Craven Cottage. Benji Dixon suggests Brazil versus Japan is Loftus road all over no it isn't benji dixon because brazil versus japan is the umbro cup 1995 at goodison park so doesn't count can't have it actual musical artist of some repute saint raymond says mexico versus algeria last night had craven cottage written all over it i'm not sure about that i don't i'm not sure of the uh, mexican algerian population in sw something or other so I'm not com- completely convinced on the other hand sam says i was at greece versus south korea at craven cottage which also had a pitch invader I, I don't remember Greece versus South Korea. Last of all, Jack Pierce uh, Coxie says, honorary mention to Australia versus Ecuador at the Den in 2014. Tim Cahill became the Australia's top scorer only for Ecuador to come back from three down to win 4-3. That sounds fucking great. Yeah. Everything that about that sounds fantastic. Yeah, and I must say, like, I've been to some of these games. I mean, the one that stands out to me, I went to nil-nil draw between Nigeria and Ghana at Vicarage Road in about 2012, <laughs> which I think really, really suits the criteria. And I must say, I like, this. much as we're kind of laughing no, like I've had some great experiences at those grounds. I mean, it makes well, the you realise, like, good, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you get, you know, lots of these countries obviously play in London because they're big communities of people here, and these are people mm. who, you know, are not going to be going back to to their home countries to see their team play. And you just get sometimes fantastic atmosphere, usually quite bad games. But um, yeah. yeah, I've got some really good memories of them. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, for the domestic centric um, football fans amongst us, the, the the kind of reassuring feeling that that some of the bigger stars not won't have to travel ten thousand miles to go and play their games um, because we're selfish and we want them to stay in one piece. Anyway, thanks for this lovely trip through international football. I, I think we've covered pretty much all the curiosities we could have done, except for one: the cliche quiz. Are you ready? Mm. Yep. You know the format by dun, now. Dun, dun. I'm going to ask you three questions. Whoever provides me with the correct answer first wins the point. First of all, question number one. If you haven't received a call-up to your international team for around two years after your last one, wilderness? where do you find yourself? International wilderness. Yeah, good interrupting. Uh, that That is allowed and good work. <laughs> one nil to Charlie Eccleshare. Z- uh, marking, did you, did you actually know that? I would have had to have a think about it. That was remarkably oh, quick on the buzzer. Okay. University challenge style interruption. (laughs) Yeah, I I zoomed in on on you mentally. Giovanni Trapattoni has managed Italy, Republic of Ireland, and which other crack Catholicism outfit? Oh, Vatican City. (gasps) I was going to say Vatican City is gag. (laughs) Oh, I thought I'd... I was like, I'll let him have a serious answer and I'll save that. 
He's managed Vatican yeah. City. He's managed the Vatican City. Yeah, it's a, it was a, a lifelong dream of his. Apparently, yeah, he, um, he managed them for a, a game or two, I think. But um, hmm, there they are. Um, one all. Wonderful news. As we go into the pivotal question three, which potentially lucrative quirk linked the international careers of Chris Kirkland, Lewis Cook, Harry Wilson? Oh, their dads and put a Ryan bet on them that they. Their dads put a bet on them that they'd get an England cap when they were kids Just or whatever. Joylessly storming in, and, and <laughs> but Sorry. yes, you are indeed you are My... indeed correct. Um, either successfully or still pending, all of their parents have placed potentially lucrative bets on them becoming international footballers. Um, this is actually this is a genuinely um, established thing, Charlie. Uh, betting companies research each case individually. Dependent on family <laughs> history and what you know, hmm. what their current status of their careers are before they offer the odds. Labrooks revealed in 2012 that they receive thousands of requests each year for this sort of thing from sort of budding footballers' parents, and they they offer fixed odds on any child under six. It's all getting a bit seedy now. Um, so um, on on most recent evidence, um, the, you can get fixed odds for your child under six of a thousand to one to play for England. Five hundred to one to play in the Premier League. I feel like I get that bet on for my uh, for my two year old. <laughs> anyway, Charlie wins two one. A, a, a good cliche quiz, I think. That was nicely nicely pitched. Um, really good, yeah. Yeah, shame shame for shame for Coxie. But then you know, if you're a man who thinks seven two is a nine goal thriller, perhaps <laughs> you're not really the calibre to be playing yeah. the cliche quiz. Yeah, I lost it in the tunnel that one, I think. Yeah, before we even <laughs> yes. came out onto the pitch. Thanks both. That was that was illuminating in, in all sorts of ways. Uh thanks for joining me. Cheers, Coxie. My pleasure. Thanks, Adam. And thanks, Charlie. Thank you, Adam. See everyone next week. Ooh.